Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Y'all, my friends Howard and Jessica of Plotting Through the Presidents have just started their new season, and you need to go check it out. The first episode is called The John Adams Diet. And no, before you get any ideas, this ain't a health podcast based on the eating habits of our nation's leaders. It is a deeply researched, albeit humorous, storytelling show that explores the lesser-known tales of the early presidents, the founders, and even their families. From the real reason Alexander Hamilton and John Adams hated each other to the truth behind Ben Franklin's naughty reputation— They've even covered stuff as wild as the story of John Quincy Adams and the mole people to Winston Churchill's nude White House encounter with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. And of course, the Bell Witch makes an appearance when they're talking about old hickory. So y'all, go follow Plotting Through the Presidents to plot along with Howard and Jess and check out plodpod.com for links to your favorite podcast app and of course to dive into their past bingeable seasons. That's plodpod.com. Happy holidays, y'all. I hope each and every one of you had a fantastic year. I know I did, and a lot of that is because of you. And so even though last week I posted our final episode of 2023, I think I'd be a pretty awful host of all things spooky if I didn't send you off with a little something special to show my gratitude for listening to Southern Gothic this year. Now, as I'm sure many of you are aware of, the holiday season hasn't always been a purely upbeat time of the year. In fact, around the world, celebrations have frequently fit a little more into the dark and spooky category rather than the holly and jolly. You know, like Krampus and the Yule Cad, ghost stories by the fire, stuff like that. Well, every year I consider doing something to commemorate this, specifically the old Victorian tradition of telling ghost stories for Christmas. But I had never found one that really felt Southern enough for y'all. You know what I mean? But look, this year I figured, who cares? I want to do something nice for you. So I asked my friend, the author and paranormal researcher, Amanda Woomer, if I could steal a couple of old stories out of her book, A Very Frightful Victorian Christmas, 12 Ghost Stories, 6 Victorian Recipes, and then share them with you. That's right, we're going to dive into a couple of old Victorian ghost stories today. Now, if you enjoy this kind of thing and you want more, you've got two options to get it. First of all, you can just go ahead and grab Amanda's book over on Amazon. And while you're there, check out some of her many other titles. She's written a bunch of wonderful books. But if you want to hear more stories, well, for the last 12 nights, I have been narrating Amanda's book on video, sitting by my Christmas tree, and posting it over on Patreon for all of our supporters over there. That's right, 12 nights of very frightful Victorian Christmas stories. So head over there if you want to dive a little bit deeper. We've got links to both Amanda's book and Patreon in the show notes. 
Now, without further ado, let's get a little bit spooky. The Christmas Ghost by Anna Alice Chapin. It is going to be a real Christmas Eve party, old-fashioned, you know, with an open fire and ghost stories and punch with baked apples in it and, and a flashlight. Who told you? A flashlight? How beastly. No, what fun. What a lovely idea. Was it one of Candace's? I think it was. She wanted a record of the evening and we are all to have copies of the pictures to keep as souvenirs. They were all merry and chattered like young birds, all except Myra Randall. She smiled and was cheerful enough in a way, but she had never quite seemed carefree since the breaking of her engagement to Max Atwood two years before. Candace Jewett, the young hostess tonight, had been trying for months to bring the two together again and had gone so far as to include them both in her Christmas Eve party. But neither Max nor Myra was happy about it. They had been cool and calm and polite with each other, but nothing more. Candace was disappointed enough to cry. Pulling Myra into a corner while the others were laughing and discussing the best games for 12 people, she wrapped her friend in a hug. Myra, she began with that ghost of a stammer that her many admirers found so irresistible. Why don't you make up with Max? He's such a darling. Myra was tall and dainty, with gray eyes and a vast amount of smooth red-brown hair. She was a girl who went hunting a great deal and looked it. She was equally perfect in a riding habit and in full evening dress. She raised her brow with a slightly mocking expression. Sorry, my dear, she said, but I can't do that, even to oblige you. Max is attractive. She looked down the room and through the door to the young man who was joking and flirting with Letty Lovell. They were preparing some mysterious game, weaving string around every conceivable object. He is attractive, Myra repeated. But frankly, Candy, I can't marry a man who has no more heart than, than, than a crocodile. Myra Randall, Candace gasped. How dare you compare our Max to a crocodile? He's the warmest, kindest, nicest, understandingest heart in the world. Candace, Myra said, looking straight in front of her. Candace could see her slender, strong hands clenched hard in her sides. Beatrix loved Max, and he loved her. And yet within one year of her death, he can joke and play at love again like that? Candace nearly fell into the fire in surprise. Myra was the most unexpected person. Beatrix, she repeated almost stupidly. Beatrix, who died last Christmas time? Yes, Myra said. My cousin Beatrix. Did you ever suspect it? They cared for each other. That was why I broke off the engagement. But did he... Did she tell you? I don't see how... I heard Beatrix telephone him from here that Christmas Eve two years ago when we were all together. Do you remember? Of course. Our first house party since we were all grown up and out in society. Well, you know Max had sent word he couldn't get out until Christmas Day. On the afternoon on the day before Christmas, I was curled up there. Myra pointed to the little room opening out of the big library where they all were, dozing over a book. And she laughed bitterly, thinking of Max. You see, I adored him then. I heard a little rustle and Beatrix passed the half-open door 
and went to the telephone in the hall. She did not see me and it never occurred to me to let her know I was there until I heard her say, Oh, Max, my darling, is it you? Yes, they're all upstairs dressing. No, there's no chance of her overhearing. Of course, I can't repeat it all. Myra's color faded from her face at the memory, but she went steadily on. They agreed to meet in London that evening for the last time. They had agreed to give each other up, you see. Do you remember that Beatrix was called to town suddenly that evening? To see her aunt that was ill, yes. And came back the next day on the same train with Max? Candace nodded, speechless. Well, Myra said, that was all. And then I broke the engagement. Did you ever tell them? No, I tried to save their feelings. Myra laughed and shrugged her shoulders. You see, she added simply, I was fond of them both, so I was quite sorry when it never came to anything between them despite my setting Max free. I suppose they must have quarreled, and a year later, she was dead. And you still wear mourning for her, Candace shook her head. Why not, said Myra in a faint surprise, looking down at her black dinner dress. She was my first cousin, and I loved her dearly. Beatrix was such a splendid, vital creature, with such will and poise, and to think that she is now dead. Candace left her silently and went across to where Letty and Sybil were talking in low voices. You seem very solemn, girls, she said, trying to speak lightly. Sib was saying how Beatrix would have loved it tonight, Letty said. Candace shifted, suddenly uncomfortable. Beatrix seems to be in the air tonight, she said almost impatiently. Well, Sybil said, she said she would be, you know. What on earth do you mean, exclaimed Letty. Why, don't you remember how she used to laugh and say, if I die first, girls, I'll come back and haunt you. I'll never be quiet in my grave. We were just an even dozen then, counting Beatrix at our party two years ago, Letty sighed. We're only 11 now, aren't we? No, still 12, Candace said. My kid brother Jack is old enough now to join us, and with Gracie's brother, Jimmy, Max, and Rudolph, the two Graves boys, and Colin Clay, we're an even dozen still. But I didn't want to ask an extra girl, she added hesitantly. Somehow, on Beatrix's behalf, I thought I'd let Jack be with Twelve. She went off to oversee the arrival of the great bowl of steaming punch in which the baked apples floated in the true old English style. Corby Grange had been given over to the young people that Christmas Eve. Candace's father had slipped away to the study at the back of the house so that her guests might be at liberty to make merry until dawn if they liked. And of course, they took advantage of it to romp and laugh and pretend they were schoolchildren again. They played games, sang carols, and told fortunes. Then, finally, Candace suggested playing oracles. No one knew anything about it. You play it like this, she explained. Each one of us writes a question and folds it up and writes a number on the inside. Then everyone draws from a hat a slip of blank paper with a number written on it and writes an answer to an imaginary question. Just any foolish thing you like, yes or not at all, or they are better with onions. You could even put a mysterious prophecy or a sentimental message, anything you like. Then you put them into a hat or bowl and take them up to the oracle and then people go up one by one and read their number, and the oracle hands them the corresponding answer, and they have to read aloud the question and answer. It's awfully funny sometimes. 
It was an absurd game, of course, but young people can get fun out of anything at Christmas time. So they appointed Jimmy Markwell the Oracle and settled down to play the game. After they had written all the papers, they turned the answers over to Jimmy, who sat in a mysterious corner behind a fire screen. They put out all the lights except one ghostly candle. Then one by one, they went up and received their messages from fate. Some of the combinations of the questions and answers made no sense, and they had one or two good laughs before it came to Myra Randall's turn. She walked the length of the dark room, almost invisible in her somber gown. Number 11, she said very quietly. She now felt that the question she had written had been a foolish one, not just foolish, indiscreet. She dreaded having to read it aloud. The oracle handed over a slip. She approached the one candle. It flickered so that she could hardly see to read. Question, should you believe your own eyes and ears when you do not want to? Hold on, there's an awful draft in here, Max interrupted. I'll draw the curtain. Myra put her hand to her throat and went on. Answer, the eyes and ears of the living are dulled by earth. She stopped short, appalled. How could such an answer have come by chance? Someone must have read her question before writing the answer. By Jove, Rudolph said, clearly uncomfortable. There's no fun if it comes out as well as that. Who wrote it anyway, the answer I mean? Well, don't all speak at once. No one spoke. The candle had stopped flickering and now was burning with a clear, steady light. In its rather ghostly rays, the faces of twelve friends looked pale and unnatural. Candace was the first to speak. I, I don't think this has turned out to be a very funny game, she said nervously. Let's try something more amusing. Yes, said Rudolph. Let's tell ghost stories or go and visit the graveyard or do something really lively and cheerful. Next, called the oracle. We might as well finish, Candy. You're the only one left. Twelve, stammered Candy. Her question was about making an offer of marriage. The answer, easily traceable to Sybil Lee, was concerned with manners. It was not a particularly amusing combination, but they all laughed hysterically. It was much better than Myra's depressing coincidence. So that's your stupid game, said Sybil scornfully. Well, I don't think much of that. Number 13 someone said in the darkness. They all jumped. Who on earth was that? demanded the oracle. Somebody's fooling, Max said at once. The game is over. There are only 12 of us here. But there's a paper here. Two papers here, protested the oracle. I suppose it's Rudolph, Candace said. He's always playing jokes. She spoke as if Rudolph was not sitting in the room. I swear I didn't, he protested. Read them out loud, Jimmy, Max said. It's too dark, said the oracle. I can't see to read over here. Bring me that candle. The candle was misbehaving again, but in a moment it stopped and burned clearly once more. Max carried it across the room and held it while Jimmy read out slowly and with many pauses. Number 13. Question. What was Beatrix doing on Christmas Eve two years ago? Oh, Jimmy, that is too much, Candace gasped, shocked. Beatrix is dead. No one should drag her name into this nonsense. I can't help it, the oracle cried. 
That's what's on the paper. Someone's written it. Then someone has very bad taste, Sybil declared. Do you want to hear the answer, Jimmy asked. Candace hesitated, but to everyone's surprise, Max spoke. Yes, please, he said quietly. Let's have the answer. And Jimmy read, Number 13. Answer. On Christmas Eve, one year before she died, Beatrix went to the telephone at Corby Grange and pretended to call up Max. She knew that Myra was in the next room, and she let her think that she was exchanging words of love with the man Myra was engaged to. She made believe she was agreeing to an appointment in town that evening, and Myra saw her leave for the evening train. She and Max came to Corby Grange together the next day, and Myra broke the engagement. Myra did not know that Beatrix had not spoken to Max for weeks until she met him on the train that morning. I can hardly read this, Jimmy said. It's so scrawly and queer as if it had been written in a hurry. Nor that the receiver, I think it's receiver, nor that the receiver had never been taken off the hook. There was a dead silence in the room when suddenly, without warning, the candle went out. Candace screamed. Sybil clung to Rudolph. Grace and Letty Lovell had both burst into tears. Myra did not cry, but she shook from head to foot with a strange excitement that was not entirely terror. Someone touched her hand softly in the darkness. Instinctively, she knew it was Max. It's all right, he said nervously in her ear. They'll find a match in a minute. Just an absurd, rather rotten joke of someone's. A joke? Myra gasped. Oh, Max, is it true what the 13th paper said? I suppose so, he said gently. I never received a telephone message from Beatrix in my life. Max, she whispered, and he had time to draw her near him and kiss her before a rather bright match flared up. See here, Rudolph said as he lit, not the candle but the gas lamp. I've had enough of this oracle business. It was ghostly, said Candace, wiping a tear from her cheek. Who would have written those things? I suggest, said Jimmy earnestly, that we never try to find out. A knock sounded on the door. Are they ready for the photograph? They welcomed the diversion, but twelve rather solemn young faces looked at the man with the camera. One of you moved, didn't you, during the flash? The photographer asked. I don't think so, someone replied. But just as I touched off the flash, I thought I saw a pale young woman in a white dress sitting next to the tall gentleman. As you see, she is not there now. Candace jumped back. No lady here tonight is wearing a white dress, she said as she caught her breath. Oh, my mistake, murmured the mystified photographer. It, it might have been a window shade or a curtain. Yes, of course, Candace agreed hastily. The pictures were never sent around as souvenirs. Instead, the plate was discovered years later, for in the group in the photograph, there was a 13th person, and the face was the face of Beatrix, who had been dead a year. Audio fiction fans, y'all need to go check out The Sprouting. 
an eldritch horror of an actual play podcast set in an apocalyptic future where eldritch plants have taken over, magical bargains twist the fabric of reality, and each survivor struggles to trust their own senses as they try to see their goals through to their ends. This podcast features an international cast, original scoring, and immersive sound design. In fact, y'all, here's a quick preview of The Sprouting, available now anywhere you get your podcasts. With your long forgotten name, we call upon you. We call upon you. In the words of the unspeakable language, we call upon you. We call upon you. By the spilt blood of the wicked who walk upon this world, sprouting the words of false idols, we call upon you. We call upon you. On the land of the dead harvest, that which brings the earth itself into your service, Yamal, we call upon you. We call upon you. We call upon you. We call upon you. Yamal calls upon you. The Sprouting, a Call of Cthulhu actual play podcast by Blighthouse Studio. Find us on your podcatcher of choice. I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. The Doll's Ghost by F. Marion Crawford. It was a terrible accident, and for a single moment, the grand house of Cranston Hall stood still. The butler emerged from the parlor where he rested. Two grooms of the chambers entered the room from opposite directions. Housemaids appeared on the grand staircase, and many say even Mrs. Pringle, the housekeeper, stood on the landing. The head nurse, the undernurse, and the nursery maid all watched in horror. Lady Gwendolyn Lancaster Douglas Scroop, the youngest daughter of the ninth Duke of Cranston, aged six years and three months, picked herself up and sat down on the third step from the foot of the grand staircase in Cranston House. Oh, the butler cried out as he disappeared once again. Ah, responded the grooms as they went their way. It's only that doll, Mrs. Pringle muttered. The undernurse heard her say it. Then the three nurses gathered around Lady Gwendolyn and patted her, offered her treats from their pockets, and hurried her out of Cranston House as fast as they could before someone found out they had allowed their charge to tumble down the grand staircase with her doll in her arms. As the doll was badly broken, the nursery maid carried it, with the pieces all wrapped up in Lady Gwendolyn's cloak. It was not far to Hyde Park, and when they found a quiet place, they stopped to make certain that Lady Gwendolyn had no bruises, for the carpet was very thick and soft upon the stairs. Lady Gwendolyn Lancaster Douglas Scroop sometimes yelled, but she never cried. It was because she had yelled that the nurse had allowed her to go downstairs alone with Nina, the doll, under one arm, while she steadied herself on the banister with her other hand. Unfortunately, she had marched down the steps upon the polished marble steps beyond the edge of the carpet, so she had fallen, and Nina had come to an untimely demise. 
When the nurses were quite sure that she was not hurt, they unwrapped the doll and looked at her. She had been a very beautiful doll, very large and fair, with real yellow hair and eyelids that would open and shut over very grown-up dark eyes. When you moved her right arm up and down, she said, Papa. And when you moved her left arm, she said, Mama. I heard her say, Pa, when she fell, the undernurse said, who had heard everything. But she should have said, Papa. That's because her arm went up when she hit the step, the head nurse said. She'll say the other Pa when I pull it down again. Pa, Nina said as her right arm was pushed down, speaking through her broken face. It was cracked right across from the upper corner of the forehead with a hideous gash through the nose and down to the little frilled collar of the pale green silk Mother Hubbard frock, and two little triangles of porcelain had fallen out. It's a wonder she can speak at all, the undernurse said, surprised. You'll have to take her to Mr. Puckler, her superior ordered. It's not far. You better go at once. Lady Gwendolyn was busy digging a hole in the ground with a twig, and paid no attention to the nurses. What are you doing? The nursery maid inquired, watching the girl. Nina is dead, so I'm digging her a grave, her ladyship required thoughtfully. Oh, she'll come back to life, the nursery maid assured the child. Don't worry. The undernurse wrapped Nina up again and set off. Fortunately, a kind soldier with very long legs happened to be nearby. He offered to see the undernurse to Mr. Puckler's and back. Mr. Bernard Puckler and his daughter lived in a little house in an alley, just off of a quiet street not far from Belgrave Square. He was the great doll doctor. He mended dolls of all sizes and ages, boy dolls and girl dolls, baby dolls in long clothes and grown-up dolls in fashionable gowns, talking dolls and silent dolls, those that shut their eyes when they lay down and those whose eyes were shut by a wire. His daughter, Else, was just over 12 years old, but she was already very clever at mending dolls' clothes and doing their hair, which is harder than you might think, though dolls do sit nice and still while it's being done. Mr. Puckler had originally been a German, but he had left his nationality behind him when he arrived in London many years ago, like a great many foreigners. He still had one or two German friends who came on Saturday evenings, smoked with him, and gambled with a few farthings. They even called him Air Doctor which seemed to please Mr. Puckler very much. He looked older than he was, for his beard was rather long and ragged, his hair was thin, and he wore horn-rimmed spectacles. As for Else, she was a thin, pale child, very quiet and neat, with dark eyes and brown hair that was pulled back in a braid and tied with a black ribbon. She was the one that took the dolls back to their homes when they were healthy and strong once again. The house was a little one, but too big for the two people who lived in it. There was a small sitting room on the street, and the workshop was in the back, and there were three rooms upstairs. But the father and daughter spent most of their time in the workshop, because they were always working, even in the evenings. Mr. Puckler laid Nina on the table and looked at her for a long time, till the tears began to fill his eyes behind his spectacles. He was a very sensitive man and often fell in love with the dolls he mended. They were real little people to him with personalities, thoughts, and feelings of their own, and he was tender with them all. But he fell in love at first sight with some of them 
and when they were brought to him maimed and injured, they seemed so pitiful that he couldn't help but cry. You must remember that he grew up surrounded by dolls, and he understood them. How do you know that they don't feel anything? He said to Else. You must be gentle with them. It costs nothing to be kind to the little beans, and perhaps it makes a difference to them. He fell instantly in love with Nina, perhaps because her beautiful brown glass eyes were similar to Else's, and he loved Else most of all, with all his heart. It was clear to Puckler that Nina had not been in the world for very long. Her complexion was perfect. Her hair was smooth where it should be smooth, and curly where it should be curly, and her silk clothes were perfect. But across her face was the frightful gash, like a knife wound, deep and dark within, but clean and sharp at the edges. When he tenderly pressed her head to close the gaping wound, the edges of the porcelain made a fine grating sound that was painful to hear, and the lids of the dark eyes quivered and trembled as if Nina was suffering. Poor Nina, he exclaimed sorrowfully. I promise I won't hurt you too much, though you will take a long time to heal. He always asked the names of the broken dolls when they were brought to him. He liked Nina for a name. In every way, she pleased him more than any doll he had seen for many years, and he felt drawn to her. He quickly made up his mind to make her perfect and sound, no matter how much work it might be. Mr. Puckler worked patiently a little at a time, and Else watched him. She could do nothing for poor Nina, whose clothes didn't need mending. The longer the doll doctor worked, the more fond he became of the yellow hair and the beautiful brown glass eyes. He sometimes forgot about the other dolls waiting to be fixed, lying side by side on the shelf. Sometimes he sat for hours gazing at Nina's face while he tried to come up with the perfect way to hide even the smallest trace of the terrible accident. She was wonderfully mended, even Puckler had to admit it, but the scar was still visible to his keen eyes. It was a very fine line right across the face, downwards from right to left. Of course, there wasn't much else he could do. Everything had gone right. The cement had set perfectly on the first try, and the weather had been fine and dry, which makes a great difference in a doll's hospital. At last, he knew that he could do no more, and the undernurse had already come twice to see whether the job was finished. Nina is not quite strong yet, Mr. Puckler had answered each time, for he could not say goodbye to the doll just yet. And now he sat at the table where he worked, and Nina lay before him for the last time with a big brown box beside her. It stood there like her coffin, just waiting for her. He must put her into it and lay tissue paper over her dear face, and then put on the lid, and at the thought of tying the strings, his sight blurred with tears again. He was never going to look into the glassy depths of the beautiful brown eyes again, nor hear her little voice say Papa and Mama. It was a painful moment for the man. In the vain hope of gaining more time before the separation, he picked up the little sickly bottles of cement, glue, gum, and color, looking at each one before glancing up at Nina's face. All his small tools lay there, neatly arranged in a row but he knew that he could not use them again for Nina. She was quite strong at last, and in a world where there were no cruel children to hurt her, she might live a hundred years with only that almost invisible line across her face to tell of the fearful thing that had happened to her on the marble steps of Cranston House. 
Suddenly, Mr. Puckler's heart was quite full, and he had jumped up from his seat and turned away. Else, he said, his voice shaking, you must do it for me. I cannot bear to see her go into that box. He moved to stand at the window with his back turned, while Else did what he could not. Is it done, he asked, without turning around? Then take her away, my dear. Put on your hat and take her to Cranston House quickly. I will turn around once you're gone. Else was used to her father's peculiar ways with the dolls, and though she had never seen him so moved by a parting, she was not at all surprised. Come back quickly, he called out to her once she was at the door. It's already getting late. I shouldn't send you out at this hour, but I cannot bear to go myself. When Else was gone, he left the window and sat down in his place before the table again to wait for the child to come back. He touched the place where Nina had lain very gently, and he recalled the softly tinted pink face, the glass eyes, and the ringlets of yellow hair until he could almost see them. The evenings were long and it was beginning to grow dark. Mr. Puckler wondered why else did not come back. She had been gone an hour and a half, and that was much longer than he had expected for it was barely half a mile from Belgrave Square to Cranston House. He convinced himself that the child might have been kept waiting, but as the twilight darkened, he grew anxious and began pacing in the dim workshop, no longer thinking of Nina, but of Else, his own living child whom he loved. An undefinable, unnerving sensation came upon him. A chilliness and a faint stirring of his thin hair joined with a wish to be in the company rather than to be alone much longer. It was the beginning of fear. He told himself in strong German English that he was a foolish old man, and he began to search for matches. He knew just where they should be, for he always kept them in the same place, close to the little tin box that held bits of sealing wax of various colors. But somehow, he could not find the matches in the gloom. Something had happened to else, he was sure, and as his fear intensified, he believed he might calm down if he could light the room and see what time it was. Then he called himself a foolish old man again, and the sound of his own voice startled him in the dark. Where were those matches? The window was gray still. He might see what time it was if he went close to it. He stood up from the table, pushed his chair in, and began to cross the floorboards. Something was following him in the dark. There was a small pattering, much like tiny feet upon the boards. He stopped and listened, and the roots of his hair tingled. It was nothing, and he was just a foolish old man. He took two more steps, and he was sure that he had heard the little pattering again. He turned his back to the window and faced the darkness. Everything was quiet and still, and it smelt of paste and cement and wood fillings as usual. Is that you else? He asked. He was surprised by the fear in his voice. There was no answer in the room. He held up his watch to try to make out what time it was by the gray dusk that was not quite darkness yet. As far as he could see, it was within a few minutes of 10 o'clock. He had been alone for a long time. He was so frightened for Else, who was out in London so late, he nearly ran across the room to the door. As he fumbled for the latch, he distinctly heard the running of little feet after him. Mice, he muttered to himself as he finally managed to get the door open. He shut it quickly behind him and felt as though some cold thing had settled onto his back and was clinging to him. The hall was quite dark, 
but he found his hat and was out in the alley in a moment's time, breathing more freely and surprised to find how much light there still was in the open air. He could see the pavement clearly under his feet and far off down the street. He could hear the laughter and calls of children playing a game. He wondered how he could have been so nervous and for an instant, he thought of going back into the house to wait quietly for else. But instantly, he felt that nervous fright of something washing over him again. In any case, it was better to walk to Cranston House and ask the servants about his child. Perhaps one of the women had taken a fancy to her and was giving her tea and cake. He walked quickly to Belgrave Square and then up the broad streets, listening as he went for the tiny footsteps behind him. But he heard nothing and was laughing at himself when he rang the servant's bell at the big house. Of course the child must be here. The person who opened the door stared at Mr. Puckler, confused. No little girl had been seen, and he knew nothing about no dolls. She's my little girl, Mr. Puckler explained, trembling, for all of his anxiety was returning tenfold. I'm afraid something has happened to her. The servant said rudely, nothing could have happened to her in this house because she hasn't been here. A jolly good thing, too. Mr. Puckler insisted on coming inside, for he wished to speak to the undernurse who knew him. But the man was ruder than ever and finally shut the door in his face. When the doll doctor was alone on the street, he steadied himself with the railing. He felt as though he were breaking in two just as some dolls break in the middle of his chest. Presently, he knew that he must do something to find else, and that gave him strength. He began to walk as quickly as he could through the streets, following every highway and byway which his little girl might have taken on her errand. He asked several police officers in vain if they had seen her. Most of them answered him kindly, for they saw he was sober and in his right mind, and some of them had little girls of their own. It was one o'clock in the morning when he went up to his own door again, worn out, hopeless, and brokenhearted. As he turned the key in the lock, his heart stood still, for he knew that he was awake and not dreaming as he heard those tiny footsteps pattering to meet him from inside the house, along the passage. But he was too upset to be frightened anymore. His heart went on beating with a dull pain that found its way through him with every pulse. So he went in, hung up his hat in the dark, and found the matches in the cupboard and the candlestick in its place in the corner. Mr. Puckler was so overcome and completely worn out that he sat down in his chair before the work table and nearly fainted as his face dropped forward upon his hands. Beside him, the solitary candle burned steadily with a low flame in the still warm air. Else, else, he moaned against his knuckles, and that was all he could say, yet it was no relief to him. On the contrary, the very sound of her name was a new, sharp pain that pierced his ears and his head and his very soul, for every time he repeated the name, it meant that little else was dead, somewhere out in the streets of London in the dark. He was so terribly upset that he did not even feel something pulling gently at the hem of his old coat, so gently that it was like the nibbling of a tiny mouse. He might have thought it really was a mouse had he noticed it. Else, else, he groaned against his hands. Then a cool breath stirred his thin hair, and the low flame of the candle dropped down to a mere spark, not flickering as though a draft was going to blow it out, 
but just dropping down as if it had burned out on its own. Mr. Pogler felt his hands stiffen with fright, and there was a faint rustling sound like some small bit of silk blowing in a gentle breeze. He sat up straight, stark and scared, and a small wooden voice spoke in the stillness. Papa, it said with a break between the syllables. Mr. Puckler jumped up and his chair fell over with a smashing noise upon the wooden floor. The candle had almost gone out. It was Nina's doll voice that had spoken. He would have known it among the voices of a hundred other dolls, and yet there was something more to it. A little human ring with a pitiful cry and a call for help and possibly the wail of a hurt child. Mr. Puckler tried to look around, but he seemed to be frozen from head to foot. Then, with a great effort, he raised one hand to each of his temples and pressed his own head around as he would have turned a doll's head. The candle was burning so low that it might as well have been out altogether, for any light it gave was null, and the room seemed quite dark. Then he saw something. He would not have believed that he could be more frightened than he had just been a moment before. But he was, and his knees shook, for he saw the doll standing in the middle of the floor, shining with a faint and ghostly radiance, her beautiful glassy brown eyes fixed on his, and across her face the very thin line of the break that he had mended shone as though it were drawn in light with a fine point of a white flame. Yet there was something more in the eyes, too. There was something human. They were like Elsa's own, but as if only the doll saw through those eyes and not else. Just seeing Elsa's eyes and the doll's face was enough to bring back all his pain and to make him forget his fear. Else, my little Else, he cried out loud. The small ghost moved and its doll arm slowly rose and fell with a stiff mechanical notion. Papa, it said. It seemed this time that there was even more of Elsa's voice echoing somewhere between the wooden notes that reached his ears so distinctly and yet so far away. Else was calling him. He was sure of it. His face was white in the gloom, but his knees did not shake anymore, and he felt that he was less frightened. Yes, child, I am here, but where, he asked. Where are you, Else? Papa. The syllables died away in the quiet room. There was a low rustling of silk, the glassy brown eyes turned slowly away, and Mr. Puckler heard the pitter-patter of the small feet and the bronze slippers as the figure ran straight to the door. Then, the candle burned high again, the room was full of light, and he was alone. Mr. Puckler passed his hand over his eyes and looked around. He could see everything quite clearly, and he felt that he must have been dreaming, though he was standing instead of sitting down as he should have been if he had just woken up. The candle burned brightly now. There were the dolls to be mended lying in a row. The third one had lost her right shoe, and Else was making a new one. He knew that, and he was certainly not dreaming now. He had not been dreaming when he had come in from his fruitless search and had heard the doll's footsteps running to the door. He had not fallen asleep in his chair. How could he possibly have fallen asleep when his heart was breaking? He had been awake the entire time. He steadied himself, picked up the fallen chair and set it upon its legs, and said to himself once again that he was a foolish old man. He should be out in the streets looking for his child, asking questions, talking to the police, visiting the hospitals. Papa. 
The longing, wailing, pitiful wooden cry rang from the passage outside the door, and Mr. Puckler stood for an instant with a white face, transfixed and rooted to the spot. A moment later, his hand was on the latch. Then he was in the passage with the light streaming from the open door behind him. At the other end of the hall, he saw the little phantom shining clearly in the darkness, and the right hand seemed to beckon him as the arm rose and fell once more. He knew all at once that it had not come to frighten him but to lead him, and when it disappeared and he walked boldly toward the door, he knew that it was in the street outside waiting for him. He forgot that he was tired and that he had not eaten supper, for a sudden hope ran through him like a golden stream of life. Sure enough, at the corner of the alley and at the corner of the street and out in Belgrave Square, he saw the small ghost flitting before him. Sometimes it was only a shadow, the glare from the lamps casting a pale green sheen on its little mother Hubbard frock of silk. And sometimes where the streets were dark and silent, the whole figure shone brightly with its yellow curls and rosy cheeks. It seemed to trot along like a tiny child, and Mr. Puckler could almost hear the pattering of the slippers on the pavement as it ran. But it moved so quickly, and he could only just keep up with it, tearing along with his hat on the back of his head and his thin hair blowing in the night breeze. On and on he went, and he had no idea where he was. He did not even care, for he knew with certainty that he was going the right way. Then, at last, in a wide, quiet street, he was standing before a large door with two lamps on each side of it and a polished brass bell handle he pulled. Just inside, when the door was opened, in the bright light, there was the little shadow and the pale green sheen of the little silk dress, and once more the small cry came to his ears, less pitiful this time and more longing. Papa! The shadow turned suddenly bright, and out of the brightness the beautiful brown glass eyes were turned up happily to his, while the rosy mouth smiled so divinely that the phantom doll looked almost like a little angel. A little girl was brought in soon after 10 o'clock, said the hushed voice of the hospital doorkeeper. I think they thought she was only stunned. She was holding a big brown box with her, and they could not get it out of her hands. Her hair was brown and pulled back into a long braid. She is my little girl, Mr. Puckler said, but he barely heard his own voice. He leaned over Elsa's face in the gentle light of the children's ward, and when he stood there a minute, the beautiful brown eyes opened and looked up to his. Papa, Elsa cried softly, I knew you'd come. Then Mr. Puckler did not know what he did or said for a moment. What he felt was worth all the fear and terror and despair that had almost killed him that night. By and by, Elsa told her story. They were big boys with bad faces, Else said, and they tried to get Nina away from me. But I held on tight and fought as much as I could till one of them hit me with something. I don't remember anymore, but I think I fell. I suppose the boys ran away and somebody found me there, but I'm afraid Nina is all smashed. Here's the box, the nurse whispered softly as there were two other children in the room sound asleep. We could not take it out of her arms until she woke up. Would you like to see if the doll is broken? She untied the string very quickly, but Nina was all smashed to pieces. Only the gentle light of the children's ward made a pale green sheen on the folds of the little Mother Hubbard frock. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Y'all, my friends Howard and Jessica of Plotting Through the Presidents have just started their new season, and you need to go check it out. The first episode is called The John Adams Diet. And no, before you get any ideas, this ain't a health podcast based on the eating habits of our nation's leaders. It is a deeply researched, albeit humorous, storytelling show that explores the lesser-known tales of the early presidents, the founders, and even their families. From the real reason Alexander Hamilton and John Adams hated each other to the truth behind Ben Franklin's naughty reputation— They've even covered stuff as wild as the story of John Quincy Adams and the mole people to Winston Churchill's nude White House encounter with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. And of course, the Bell Witch makes an appearance when they're talking about old hickory. So y'all, go follow Plodding Through the Presidents to plot along with Howard and Jess and check out plodpod.com for links to your favorite podcast app and of course to dive into their past bingeable seasons. That's plodpod.com.